appreciate you making the uh, trek through the little bit of snow that came down this morning, and I trust the Lord will keep it uh, at bay as we go home later today. But th- let's open it. Start it. Father, indeed, we are thankful for the privilege of gathering together as your people on this, your holy day. Lord God, we thank you for the benefit that it is to our souls, Lord, to worship you, to study your word together, your truths, that we might be able to walk faithfully before you all our days. Truly, this is our need. We pray it would be our desire. God, you would just bless both the Sunday school time with the children downstairs and with ourselves here. And those who are watching live today, perhaps many more than usual, Lord, you would bless them as they uh, watch from there. Again, Lord, meet with us in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, brethren, well, if you want to turn in your hymn books to page 676, uh, we will conclude or finish up today in uh, the doctrine of effectual calling. And uh, it's chapter 10. Last time, if you were here, you know we finished up paragraph 3, which sought to address the subject, a very sensitive subject, concerning those who are physically or mentally unable to repent and believe and exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And though our Reformed forefathers were not willing to consign all who were unable to repent and believe to an eternity in, in hell, and of course, it's interesting, I was talking with Pastor Timothy this past week, and he actually knows someone who takes that position based on the very fact that uh, they don't and can't have or exercise faith. But it, uh, it's not certainly any kind of, even a minority view. It's very, very few. If it's minority, it's just minuscule. But the Reformers uh, did not see that in the Scripture. They could not consign all that way because nowhere the Bible taught it. But neither were they willing to say that the Bible taught that all such infants are, who are mentally, physically, uh, automatically uh, infants that perished or died in infancy automatically went to heaven when they died. They believed that based on the whole of Scripture, at least some of them were elect, and they believed if any are elect, they needed everything all other sinners needed who are condemned in Adam. That is, they would need the work of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. They would need the forgiveness of sin and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And of course, uh, we believe that God can do that. We don't quite understand it uh, because it don't have a lot of, again, light from the Scripture on it. But in the end, like Dr. Waldron, they had to confess that the Scriptures really did not speak dogmatically, or we might say emphatically, one way or the other on the subject. And so, therefore, we must be content, as I concluded last week, to bow to the sovereignty of God and to trust that the Lord of all the earth will always do what is right. Now, this brings us to paragraph four this morning, but before we unpack what is being said in this paragraph, I want to give another reminder about what the doctrine is in general. I didn't say a lot about just effectual calling last week. We were just dealing with that particular subject in paragraph three. And so when we speak of effectual calling, we're speaking about that supernatural call of God that always brings spiritually dead sinners to life. John 6, our Lord said that no one can come to me unless the Father which sent me draws him. And it's a very strong word there. It's not a, a simple wooing or, or trying to just simply convince and then fail. It is a word that is effectual because the next words of our Lord say, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him, that is the one that's drawn up on the last day. 
And so from the, the text, it teaches everyone that's drawn is raised up. And so there you have the effectual, emphatic call of God. So all that the Father draws is raised up on the last day. The drawing of the Father is the effectual call. Now, those of us who come to understand the doctrines of grace, what we use the acronym, the word TULIP, it is the word I, which we call irresistible grace. Now, many don't like this term irresistible because it does give the impression that God perhaps calls sinners against their will. It's irresistible. They can't resist it. Well, the reality is that God first changes the will of the spiritually dead sinner by bringing it to spiritual life. Our wills uh, are born spiritually in rebellion to the true and living God. They remain in that condition unless and until God takes their hearts of stone and gives them out their hearts of stone and gives them hearts of flesh. It's like the sinner in John 9. He says, I once was blind. That's all I know. He's, I, I once was blind, but now I see. As Psalm 110 states, we were made willing in the day of his power. And until that power comes upon us, we will not and do not want to come to God. One of my favorite verses, and throughout my pastoral life, I've always had a hard time hunting this text down. So I'm thankful for the days of Google. So all I need is a few words of it and I can find it. But at Psalm 65, 4, and as I was studying through the doctrines of grace in my early days, wondering if they were all true or not, this one just like was like a bolt of lightning to me. And it says this, God says this, he says, blessed is the man, or the psalmist says it, excuse me, blessed is the man you choose. Now that's election. And then it says, and calls to approach you. That's effectual call. And calls to, God causes us to approach him, as it were, in the bringing us to spiritual life. And so interesting, the other thing that was really overwhelming to me as I began to study it years ago, is that in the New Testament epistles, not so much in the Gospels, but in the New Testament epistles, wherever you come across the word call, called, or calling, it almost always refers to the effectual call of God in the salvation of his people. It's not the wooing, and then it somehow has a potential to fail. The most clear of these verses that mentions the word called, called or calling, is, is the Romans 8.30 passage. I'm sure Pastor Timothy used it when he opened up the chapter. But it says there, God, Paul says, moreover whom he predestined, there's election, these he also called. I mean, it's a strange thing if you don't believe in effectual calling. What does it mean that he called? And then it goes on. It says, whom he called, these he also justified. So if you're predestined, then that means he called you. There was a calling, and it wasn't just a wooing. It wasn't just an outward call, but he justified them, and then those whom he justified, he also glorified. No one slips through the cracks. Now, this effectual call is set in contrast to what I just stated, which is the outward call of the gospel, often given to us in the gospel accounts. The outward call is given by men, and it is sometimes made effectual by God, and sometimes it is not. Therefore, the outward call appears at times to be accepted and at times to be rejected. The apostles called men to repent and believe the gospel, but not all of them did. Our Lord Jesus gave the outward call of the gospel. After his baptism, we are told that he went about preaching to the crowds to repent and believe the gospel. And we know, brethren, don't we, that not all of them did. In fact, overall, they were only a few who did. And here's his own testimony in Matthew twenty-two fourteen: 14. For many are called, 
That's the outward call. But few are chosen. That gives you the effectual call. Now with that, as a refresher on the difference between the inward and outward call of God, what specifically does paragraph 4 address? Well, the main idea here is that the effectual call of God is absolutely necessary and no one is saved without it. I mean, that's just what this paragraph is just very clearly stating. And so this paragraph answers basically two primary questions. Number one, can the non-elect who have had contact with the gospel, who have had seemingly been affected by it in some way, affected by the Christian faith, near the Christian faith, a part of the Christian faith, can they ever be saved? The answer is no. Secondly, can the non-elect who've never had any contact with the gospel in the Christian faith ever be saved? That's the second half of the paragraph, and again, the answer is no. And so let's look closer at these two questions, the first one being answered by the first half of the paragraph. Follow along, paragraph 4, chapter 10. Others, again, notice it clearly, not elected. This is the key. Although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. From the scriptures, we learn that there have been those who have had a measure of gospel contact and gospel influence, but they were never effectually called. And we'll share a couple of those examples with you now. The first example is one that we know of very clearly, and his name is Judas Iscariot. Here is a man, brethren, who was sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ with the other 12 disciples. And this is what he told them all to go do. And this is what he gave all of them power to do. Matthew 10, 7, go, he says, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he told them what to preach. Verse 8, heal the sick cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons. <clears throat> Can you imagine it? Judas was a gospel preacher. Judas healed the sick. Judas raised the dead. Judas cleansed the lepers. Judas cast out demons, or at least Christ gave him the power to. And one day, the father of all demons would possess this man's soul. Judas heard the most compassionate sermons the world has ever heard from our Lord's lips full of warnings about hell and pleas to turn from sin and to be saved, yet there was never any chance Judas could have ever been saved as he was non-elect. He was not elect. Now, we didn't know that at the time. The disciples didn't know that at the time. Remember when he told them all that you're, all, that you're uh, one among you is going to betray me. They all went around, is it I, Lord? Is it I? So they didn't know that Judas was elect. And we don't know who uh, are non-elect. We don't know who the non-elect are. We have to get that thought out of our minds. But John 17, 12, our Lord taught this about Judas. He says, when I was with them in the world, he's praying now for his disciples. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I've kept them and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. It was ordained and even prophesied that Judas would never be saved. And so this truth, brethren, about the inability of the non-elect to ever be saved was taught by our Lord Jesus. He certainly taught this in a very another astounding passage that so impacted me in those early days. In John chapter 10, Jesus is at the temple and primarily the Jewish leaders were there and you know how much they hated Christ and and uh, did all kinds of things to try to get at him. And he's teaching in the temple, and it says that the Jews surrounded him, chapter 10 of John, and said to him, how long will you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Come on, Lord uh, Jesus. 
I mean, stop beating around the bush. Well, he decided to give them a reminder of something even greater than just words to, hey, I'm the Messiah. It's easy just to say I'm the Messiah, but it's a lot different to say that I can raise the dead to prove it. Of course, he had just done that with various ones. But so here's our words reply. He says, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Verse 26, he says this, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice because they're elect. I've chosen them. My Father has chosen them. But the reason you don't believe, and you can go down all these other lists of things, the primary one is you're just not one of his sheep, and he had the authority to tell them such. We don't know who the sheep truly are and truly not until they get or until we get on the other side of certain things. Well, other biblical examples of someone seeming to receive some ministry of the word and who may have had some common operations of the spirit were men like Herod, King Herod, who enjoyed listening to John the Baptist preach, even though he preached against him. And he tried perhaps to maybe mend his ways a little bit, but even in the end, he would rather have removed John the Baptist's head. He didn't want to do that. So it seemed like, well, maybe he had a conscience. Of course he did, but he had seared it because in the end, he would rather save face with the uh, people, uh, among the people, than to keep John the Baptist's head. Others, like Felix the governor, enjoyed hearing Paul preach. So did King Agrippa. Both men never called upon the Lord to be saved. You, you persuade me almost to be a Christian, he says. Well, why do they never call on the Lord? Because they were never effectually called by the Lord, even though they were in contact with the gospel and the true Christian religion. Our Lord summarized these kinds of people in his word in Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 20, he's 22, he says, many will say to me in that day, and this is a description of Judas even, perfect one of him, but of course many others Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not that I once knew you, and then I stopped knowing you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. One of the primary texts often used to support this part of paragraph 4 is Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. You know these words, but the author says it is impossible For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. We don't believe this is speaking of one who's had salvation and then lost it. It's a perfect example of what paragraph 4 is talking about. They received the outward call of the word. It was a powerful call. They were emotionally stirred and emotionally moved. And brethren, in 25 years of ministry, I can tell you, I've seen a lot of people, even in those early days when we used the, quote, altar, they'd come down and they'd weep and tears would roll off their eyes. Many of them, a year or two later, nowhere to be found, even until this day, anywhere in service to God or in the church. There was a sense in which they partook of the operations of the Spirit, through the word, but the Holy Spirit did not effectually call this individual. Therefore, they eventually fell away. And having fallen from what appeared to them as that which had real substance in it at the time was only a temporary experience. They took 
and mistook it for a true conversion, but they never bore any fruit. Again, our Lord describes these kinds of people in his parable of the soils. Matthew 13, 20, he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, for when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, brethren, with that, we move on to the second half of the paragraph, paragraph four. Notice it states, much less than, much less, can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. And so again, this is answering the question, can the non-elect be saved apart from the effectual call of God? Again, the answer is absolutely not. And I think that we are all aware, brethren, even in our own day of the pull and the emotional feelings that exist in our own society at the thought that perhaps Catholics, um, perhaps a watchtower society, the Mormon church, of course, Catholics deny that justification by faith alone is a different gospel. Watchtower society, Mormon church, Islam, they all deny that Jesus is truly God. And so, in the end, many of the people in our own world and people in who in, even in churches will say, well, we all believe in the same God in the end, right? Well, the answer is no. It's a very famous interview. I'm sure some of you probably have seen it between Larry King and Pastor John MacArthur in which Larry King asked MacArthur, did he really believe that everyone in the world, no matter what their religion, unless they trust in Jesus Christ to be their savior, would end up going to hell? Well, John MacArthur basically pointed him to the Bible because it wasn't MacArthur's uh, view that, of this. It was what the Bible actually taught. And it, but of course, it was his view. But he said, the Bible says, Larry, that John 14, 6, I am the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the world just refuses to believe that God wouldn't save someone who, quote, sincerely, and that word's used a lot, who sincerely wanted to be saved. And so emotions and feelings becomes the cause of their salvation rather than what the Bible says is supposed to be the cause. But what they don't realize is that no one who is a child of Adam really wants to be saved according to God's way, according to God's standard of what it means to repent and believe, because they don't want to repent of their sin. They love their sin. They love their autonomy. I get to decide to do with my life. I, I'm not submitting my whole self everything to God and let him tell me what to do every single hour of the day. And so they don't want him to be Lord of their lives. No one does until they are effectually called. Now, one of the things this part of the paragraph is dealing with is the question, is there enough light? And by the way, again, getting back to sincerity, uh, people will use that word, uh, but it it means nothing because it's, it's not a virtue that's sal salvific. It's no, there's no merit in it. But so the question is, is there enough light also in the answering in this, in this second half of the paragraph, is there enough light in general revelation to call someone to believe in Christ and be saved? So when we say general revelation, we'll see what, that, what we are being told by what we see in creation. Again, the answer is no. There is no gospel in the works of nature. There is no gospel in the good intentions and sincerity of men's hearts because there is no merit 
in their good intentions. And again, furthermore, before the holy God of Scripture, there are no good intentions in the heart of the unsaved, not at least toward God in wanting to be saved his way. Now, you give them a way to be saved without having to carry a cross. Uh, maybe we could get saved without having to, you know, go to church all the time and read our Bibles and all We could still be saved and still kind of do our own. We, we want that kind of gospel. But that's not the kind of gospel that God offers. Now, creation, brethren, as you know, clearly proclaims the existence of God so that men are without excuse. But there's not enough light in nature in creation to save them. For that, they need divine revelation. Not general, but divine revelation. Not only the revealed gospel, but the Holy Spirit to illuminate the gospel to them in the new birth. You know the verse, Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world... His, that is, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the Bible could not be more clear that Christ and his gospel are absolutely necessary for anyone to be saved. Acts 4.12, you know this verse as well, nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so everyone wants to bring up the people who live in those third world countries who never get an opportunity to ever hear the gospel. What about the poor, innocent souls who through no fault of their own were born in some tribe in the Amazon jungles? First of all, they're not innocent. Like all of us, they were born unrighteous and the poison of ass was under their lips. God has not promised that every soul ever born would have a chance to hear the gospel. And he has not promised that everyone who does hear it will be effectually called. The testimony of Scripture is, is that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Now, these teachings typically raise a lot of heated questions. One of those is, is why do we even bother to preach the gospel? If God must effectually call or else none can be saved, then why even preach the gospel? Well, first of all, the answer is because God commands it. He's God. We're mere creatures. You say, God, why has you made me this way? Secondly, and this is the primary thing we want to bring out, and that is that God uses means. He tells us he uses means. We don't just guess about this. God uses the means of preaching the gospel to call in and to effectually call in his elect people. This is why he sends missionaries. This is why we support missionaries. This is why we preach the gospel here in our own church. Because God uses means. He uses the means of your prayers and my prayers. Paul prayed for his countrymen, the Jews, that they would be saved. Brethren, it is as clear as the noses on the end of our faces. If we don't pray for sinners, sinners will not be saved. If you fall back and just say God's going to do it because he's sovereign, he's going to save, he's going to save his elect no matter what we do, and of course that is true ultimately, then we're sinning. If we don't preach the gospel, sinners will not be saved because God uses means. He's commanded us to use the means. And if he doesn't use you and doesn't use me, he will use someone else at his church who will. God uses means. And yet in all of these means, brethren, again, God alone can administer the effectual call. Only God can raise the dead. And so with these truths, brethren, what kind of applications do they leave us with? Well, first of all, number one, we need to remind of ourselves, again, that we do not know, and we have no divine insight 
into who these that we call or scholars call temporary believers. They're not ultimately saved in the end, but they temporarily believe. Well, for the most part, unless they are committing the sin and the death, 1 John 5, 6, 5, 16, which is very difficult to determine in itself, we ought always to hold out hope for sinners and to pray for their salvation. Even if they've left the church, we have a few in our congregation through the years who've been excommunicated. And uh, we don't call them brothers. We don't consider them brothers. But we are certainly, and we ought to always be praying for them to be truly repented and returned to God, whether they're truly saved or not. He knows. The Lord knows those who are his, are his own. We don't ultimately in the end. And so for those who never make a profession of faith, the heathen who live and die without ever hearing the gospel, may our sympathies, brethren, be biblically aligned. In other words, there, it is no sin to pity the lost. Obviously, we ought to. And what kind of cold-hearted people would we be to not pity those who perish without ever hearing the gospel? It is a wicked man who rejoices in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his way and live. However, at the same time, our sympathies must not deaden our zeal for God's holy justice. No one has ever, ever received injustice from God. Always remember the guilt lies with the sinner. It never lies with God. To understand God's holiness rightly, as the angels in heaven have a very good understanding of it, we would be overwhelmed, overwhelmed that even one sinner ever received mercy of God if we truly understood how holy, thrice holy, and righteous, and perfect, and good, and just God is, why would he let a vile, rebel sinner off the hook? Well, ultimately, he doesn't. Any that he does save, that sin gets imputed to his own son. Also, brethren, these sympathies for the lost, for the non-elect, must never take away from our own thankfulness for his own mercy toward us. Indeed, who are we that we should be called the children of God? It's a very humbling matter, brethren, to consider that God could have left us to perish in our sin, and it would have been a very just and right thing for him to do. The world and many Christians don't understand this, or or at least submit to it. We know from our hymn that we sing quite often, How Sweet and Awful, The the hymn writer asked the question in stanza three, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? He answers in stanza four, t'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. All we can do is be submit and humble, which is the next application. Brethren, in light of our reminder that God uses means to his elect, or one of the other applications, do we really pray earnestly for sinners to be saved? I mean, are you in the habit of that, brothers and sisters? But this morning service, did you pray for anybody that, to be saved? Because we don't know every single person who shows up is automatically in the kingdom. Do you pray for them before evening service? 
We must never allow our understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation to deaden our zeal for lost souls. Indeed, it's not only wrong, it's sin, brothers and sisters. Paul was burdened. Christ, who, who knew those who were his own? He went about preaching the gospel. It is rebellion against the revealed will of God to not use the means that he has ordained to bring his elect unto salvation. Would brethren, oh, that God would stir our affections like never before to labor for lost souls. While we trust, while we trust that it will all redound to God's glory on the last day. It will redound to the glory of his mercy or it will redound to the glory of his justice. But brethren, no one gets injustice from God. All right, well, listen, you know, I wanted to start before I close in prayer. Last week's and this week's teachings, I know, are depending on where you are and your walk with the Lord. If anyone ever has questions, Timothy and I haven't said this in a long time, we started with it, because we only have 30 minutes, we don't have a time for Q&A in our Sunday school time, or Bible class time, whatever you want to call it. We have always told you that if you have a question, obviously you can come to us, or if you want to write it down, email it, whatever you want to do, and then we'll address the question uh, in the group the next week uh, and give us time to look at it or what have you. But, you know, don't feel like you can't find answers or more answers. Not that we always have the answers, but if you feel a need to really clarify something we've said, because we make mistakes as pastors. We don't have, we're not perfect teachers. Uh, but if you have a question, uh, feel free to write it down or email us or whatever. You, just want to let you know that before we close in prayer, okay? Let's pray. Father, indeed, what weighty, weighty things that we have just in a 30-minute time tried to just cover and in which, Lord, it, just me, it took so long to try to grasp just part of it. And, and for many, it takes years to finally come to an understanding of uh, who you are and how great you are in your holiness and justice compared to also that you are truly merciful, that you're willing to save, that the offer of the gospel is free, and that people can uh, come to Christ uh, as you invite them to, that you promised them that all who come unto your son you will in no wise cast out. So, Lord, give us understanding, give us wisdom, and help us to submit to your scripture and to not go beyond uh, or nor to take away anything that's written therein. Indeed, may it bring you much glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brethren.